20 years ago when I became trained as a psychotherapist, I was exposed to a number of different theories. And whenever I heard about object relations or psychoanalysis or psychodynamic theory, I was always intrigued. I was always thoroughly confused. I was thoroughly confused about a lot of things about therapy back then, but I was particularly confused about psychodynamic therapy or psychoanalysis or object relations. And, but, but at the same time, I knew that there was something I liked about it. There was something that seemed to resonate with me. And when I was in graduate school, getting my master's 20 years ago, I was asked by instructors to choose one theory to identify as a theory that I wanted to know more about and I wanted to investigate and research and and try to apply to the clients I was seeing at my internship. And I chose object relations and specifically object relations family therapy. And ever since then, I have made it a point to learn more about it and to understand it more. And the more I learn about it, the more I like. There's certainly a lot of things about psychoanalysis, particularly classical psychoanalysis, that is quite silly to me, but there's a lot of it that I really, really enjoy as a therapist. And at my university, I'm sort of known as the psychodynamic guy. When people want to know more about object relations and psychoanalysis, they know that I'm the professor that knows about such things. And so... um. I don't know why I'm telling you that, but just so you know how how dedicated I am to it and how well known it is, I suppose. And then uh, I've I've been since I started the podcast, I've been getting a lot of requests to talk about psychodynamic theory and other kinds of things along these lines. And then patron Danielle emailed us. Patron Danielle has been a a loyal listener for a long time. She contacts us often, and we enjoy her emails quite a bit. She is a psychology student, and she wrote in and said, wrote, she wrote, I would love to hear a podcast about psychodynamic theory. I know you have talked about psychodynamic theory in previous podcasts, and my favorite was the psychodynamic formulation episode, and I would love to hear more. She also writes, this is by far my favorite podcast, with an exclamation point. Well, today you're our favorite patron because you are a patron. If you want to become a patron, make sure you go to patreon.com. Today, I'm going to talk about psychodynamic interventions in particular. Today, I want to talk about what psychodynamic therapy or psychoanalytic therapy or object relations therapy, what what does it actually look like? How, as a therapist, can you be within the school of psychodynamic therapy? (laughs) That's a poorly design sentence, but I hope you get what I mean. So I'm going to talk a little bit about the theory, but mainly I'm going to talk about the technique, essentially. Psychodynamic therapy doesn't really lend itself to talking about specific techniques. It's more of a, a general theory that guides treatment, and it can look quite different in the hands of different practitioners, but I'm going to attempt to explain it today. And also, you should know that this is my own particular integration of the various different areas that would be classified under psychoanalysis or psychodynamic theory. It's particular to me, and it will be described in my particular way. It's another reason why I kind of like it, because every psychodynamic therapist is different and adheres to a different set of assumptions and behaves in different ways. And so it's an art form when you're applying psychodynamic therapy. And along those lines, I should say that it's a little tough to explain this to people, particularly if you're not a therapist, and particularly if you're not an experienced therapist. For experienced therapists, they will probably understand, if you're not a psychodynamic therapist, you'll probably understand what I'm talking about. So um, my recommendation to you novice therapists out there is perhaps listen to this episode later on in your career, if you can remember such things years from now. And and maybe it'll make more sense to you if it doesn't make as much sense to you right now as it could. The reason why I'm telling you this is because when I was a novice therapist, psychodynamic theory, like I said earlier, was was really quite confusing to me. And, and until you actually have uh, long-term th- clients and, and experiences with different personalities, it's hard to know what I'm talking about. But again, I'm going to do my best. Welcome to the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I'm your host, 
Dr. Kirk Honda. I am chair of the Couple and Family Therapy Program at Antioch University, Seattle, and I'm also a licensed therapist. This episode is just for patrons of the podcast. So if you're listening to this and you're not a patron of the podcast, this episode will end before the content begins. If you want to hear the full episode, you have to become a patron of the podcast by going to patreon.com. That's patreon.com. And remember that patrons of the podcast can access the premium feed of the special, you know, patron-only episodes. You can access the premium feed on their phones now through their regular, you know, app that they use to access uh, podcasts. It's not just on the Patreon site anymore. Also, remember that 20% of your monthly pledge goes toward various charities that we support. Okay, welcome to the Patron Zone patrons. We love you so much. Just a little shout-out to some of our most recent patrons. Actually, patron Lyndon, he raised his monthly pledge from 5 to $10, which is awesome. Remember, you can always raise your pledge. We want to welcome to the fold, we want to welcome patron Aaron, patron Mindy, patron Andy, patron Michaela, patron Hamish or Hamish. Is that, that's sort of like the name from, from Mockingjay or whatever that show is called or book is called. Patron Lynn, patron Sonny, patron Sam, patron Mary, patron Karen, Nelda, Chelsea, Amelie, that's a nice name, Amelie, Louis or Louie, never know what to say, Janice, John, Linda. You guys are awesome. Let's go to our very first patrons. Patron Scott, he was our very first patron, I think. He is he is the raddest of all because he was first. Okay, um, let's go into the history of just a little bit into psychodynamic therapy. Um, so just as I've said before in other episodes, know that psychoanalysis or psychodynamic theory is, a, is the longest in our field. It goes back the farthest. It goes back to the 1800s, in fact, with Freud and Breuer starting around 1880-ish. Uh, and until about the 1950s, it was really the only theory out there. And so there's a lot of history, and there's a lot of people, and there's a lot of research, and there's a lot of writing, and there's a lot of experience behind it, and people from all over the world. And so to fully summarize it is impossible it's another reason why I like the theory is there's so many different people to read and so many ancient, ancient artifacts to, <laughs> to discover. And so I'm just going to list just the, the top figures over the years. And they're, they're kind of in, in order in terms of time. So we have Breuer who was first and we have Freud. We have Jung or Ferenzi, Anna Freud or Freud's daughter, Melanie Klein, Karen Horney, Fairburn, Sullivan, Winnicott, Kohut, Bayan, Lang, Mailer, Ackerman, Alexander, Bowlby, which we could say is you know, basically Bowlby and Ainsworth were we could we could subsume them underneath the psychodynamic umbrella. Rank or I think Ronk, Guntrip or Guntrip, Erickson, Kernberg, Ogden, Mitchell, Gill, Stolo, Stoloro, never know how to pronounce his name, Stoloro, Masterson, Scharf, who. Uh, him is a husband-wife team that writes about object relations, family therapy. Gelso and Hayes and Gabber, Gabbard and Tiber, Tabor, whom is a contemporary writer, and McWilliams also contemporary, and many, many more. And the each of these figures, who are really only the main ones, have their own point of view. So understand that within psychodynamic th- theory. Each one of these individuals have a particular point of view. That's why they're known so well. It's because they offered something new or some new spin or some new emphasis or even a brand new concept. So just to give you an idea of how deep it is, you know, whereas other theories might have one person at the helm. When you talk about cognitive therapy, for instance, the, the list of prominent figures is you could say is just one person. Not because it's a stupid theory, but because it's, it's simple, it's elegant, it's very easy to understand. You can explain it once and understand it and never really have to 
delve into it much. You don't have to read much about cognitive therapy to understand what it is and how to do it. But when it comes to psychodynamic therapy, it's so infinitely complex that you know we can name a whole long list of people that have contributed to it and and leave a lot of people out. For some people, this intimidates them. For me, I, I like that because I'm a lifelong committed learner. And so if a theory is easy to understand, uh, I want to understand it. But at the same time, it doesn't intrigue me the way that more complex things do. Also, along those lines, there have been many labels over the years that, have, that are basically associated with psychoanalysis and psychodynamic theory. For instance, terms like psychoanalysis or classical psychoanalysis or ego psychology or dynamic therapy. Sometimes I'll use that phrase. It's easier to say dynamic therapy instead of psychodynamic therapy. Object relations, self-psychology, psychodynamic therapy, interpersonal therapy. This is important. Interpersonal. It's a common contemporary label. Or intersubjective therapy, which is very similar, if not the same, as interpersonal. We have brief dynamic therapy. There's a lot of literature in the last 20, 30 years on brief dynamic therapy. Relational psychoanalysis. There's a lot of exciting writing within relational psychoanalysis. Each of these areas, each of these, I don't know, 10 or so areas, have thousands of books and articles within them. And each one of these areas, you could say, I am going to delve into ego psychology, and I'm just going to, and you'll never run out of stuff to learn and read about. So, uh, so again, just to give you an idea of all the different labels. All right, let's get into the interventions. This is the meat of the episode right now. Basically, I'm going to be talking about three overlapping areas of intervention types. The f- number one is empathy and listening. It's what I'm calling empathy and listening. Number two is exploration and interpretation. And number three is corrective experiences. So those are the, the main umbrellas I'm going to be talking about in terms of dynamic therapy techniques or interventions. So number one, we have empathy and listening. This is an incredibly important part of dynamic therapy. It often, I, I like to think of it as a phenomenological experience. If you're familiar with phenomenology, it is the practice as a therapist in which you really try to understand and listen to the experience of the client without putting your own bias on it as best you can. You try to, what they call, bracket your experience and put it on the shelf and and really listen to what the client is saying. So many times as human beings, when someone tells us a story, we get impatient and we think we understand what they're telling us when we're not really listening and we're not really investigating what the person's experience is. Let's see if I can come up with a quick example. So let's say your your friend gets in a fight with his wife and he comes to you and says, oh, I got in a fight with my wife. And, and you say, oh, what happened? And, well, she told me to clean the dishes, and I did it the day before, and I just didn't want to do it this time. And I said, hey, it's, it's not my turn to do it. It's your turn to do it. And I got upset, and, and I broke a plate on the wall, and then I felt bad, and then I got in the car, and I drove off. Well, for most people in my experience, even therapists, they don't necessarily investigate that story. They, they hear those details, and they think they understand the experience of the client. But in reality, the client has not said anything about their experience. They've just talked about the details, the surface elements of the story. So a phenomenological therapist or a, a very uh, you know, adept psychodynamic therapist would ask, okay, well, what was your experience of that moment? And the person might say, well, what do you mean with my experience? I got, I got angry and, and I broke a plate. Well, tell me what, what happened. You know, when, when, when your wife said to do the dishes, how did that feel? What, what, how did you experience that? What was the meaning of that experience for you? What did it feel like in your body? What thoughts went through your mind? Where does that come from? You know, uh, when you broke the plate, what was happening for you just before that? What did that feel like in the moment? And the and the description could go a number of different ways. The client could talk about hurt feelings. The client could talk about somatic feelings or feelings in their body. The the client might have thoughts of 
of, well, actually, I've been thinking I don't even want to be married anymore, and I got I just got frustrated. So there's all sorts of things that you might uncover, and as you do that, you're really listening to the client. You're really curious. You're not you're not trying. You don't have an agenda. You're just trying to get at the experience. This is very important for phenomenology, phenomenology in particular, but also in my in my version of dynamic therapy. So some people might not call this an intervention, but I do. When you're listening and really emphasizing that you're, that you're curious and you really want to understand their experience, what it felt like, what it was like for them, you are intervening in their life. You're paying attention. You're, you're showing them that they're, they're important, and you're, you're, you're taking the time to understand. And by doing that, it becomes a corrective experience, which, again, I'll get into later. But anyway, a, a, a major part of dynamic therapy in my book is is listening in a very curious phenomenological way at the same time you're providing empathy this is a very this is the cornerstone of really any therapy in my book but it is claimed in contemporary dynamic therapy over the past 30 years as the cornerstone of dynamic therapy and one and, it, and it's a characteristic that is often said that differentiates it from cognitive behavioral therapy some cognitive behavioral therapists might take issue with that. They would say I, that they have a ton of, of empathy. But, but dynamic therapists uh, in general uh, pride themselves on providing a ton of empathy, of really just understanding their experience and, and giving the impression, the real, you know, the impression that the, the therapist really cares. And, you know, meaning not a false caring, but <laughs> making sure that, that you that you let the client know that you care about their experience and that you care about the client and you care about their feelings and that you're you're doing your best to understand what their experience is like. You're not just listening, you're not just curious, but you're actually trying your best to understand and doing and and, and proving it through communication with the client. So again, this, this first area of the three areas that I want to point out in dynamic therapy is what I'm calling empathy and listening, is being very curious and listening very intently and taking the time to listen and really paying attention and providing a lot of empathy and embodying your empathy, connecting with your empathy for the client. It's a very complicated thing. It's not as easy as it's often understood by novice therapists. A lot of novice therapists will hear this and say, oh, I'll just listen, right? No, it's very difficult to listen with, with as, as much empathy as you really need to be listening to in my book. And it's hard sometimes to put your, your own biases aside. It's, it's hard to put your judgment aside. For, for many novice therapists, this is, what I, this is one of the biggest things I work on with them is, is putting their judgment and their criticism and their urge to fix and all those things, putting that, those things aside. I remember uh, as a younger person, I remember believing the cultural notion that men always try to fix problems and women uh, don't try to fix problems. You know, like you'll, you'll hear these problems like, well, you know, wives are always, I just want to talk about my problems. I don't, need, I don't need you to fix my problems and husbands are always trying to fix. And they, well, take it from me as a, as a instructor and as a supervisor of, of frankly, mainly women, but, but a number of men too. But in my field, it's, it's mainly women. I can tell you that it's a universal human thing that we all, when we're presented with someone's problems, we all have an urge to fix, even when it's not in, in the best interest of anyone. And even when we're being told, don't try to fix. It's a huge urge for all novice therapists, whether they're men or women, to, to fix. There's a certain implication, or maybe it's a cultural thing, I don't know. But there's a certain kind of routine that we get into as humans. When, when someone comes up to us with a problem, I, I just think it just provokes this urge in us to fix their problem. Like, you know, for instance, one of the things that I noticed about myself was when I'm out and about in, in the city and someone asks me for directions, I just feel this urge to tell them where to go, even if I don't know where they're supposed to go. <laughs> okay. Uh, hey, sir, you know, are you from town? I'm like, yeah. And how do I get to X, Y, or Z? And I, and if, if I know where they're supposed to go, then I gladly give them directions and I feel quite competent in the world. But if I don't know where they're supposed to go, I still feel this tremendous urge to help them instead of saying, you know what? I don't know. I have no idea where that is. I'm really sorry. There's this there's this compulsion when someone asks you a question that 
you are supposed to provide an answer, and if you don't, then there's something wrong with you. There's this, this, it's this weird social script that we follow, and therapists often fall into that trap. And so as a therapist, it, 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 it can be quite hard to just listen without an agenda, to, to provide pure empathy or, you know, I don't know what pure empathy is, but, you know, really as, as pure of empathy as you can. This is often associated in classical psychoanalysis language with free association. You may have heard that this term before, free association. This is often in contemporary, you know, psychodynamic therapy, they often will equate empathy and listening with free association. I don't really, but um, because the history of psychoanalysis was based on, on free association. It was the main intervention in classical, classical psychoanalysis. For instance, Freud and Breuer used to use this technique to help make the unconscious conscious. They would encourage the patient to talk freely without judgment or interruption. The client would lay on the couch and, and free associate and just talk and talk and talk and talk and talk while the analyst sat out of view and took notes and didn't say anything and interpreted and this is classical psychoanalysis, and it's rarely, it's rarely used today, if at all, really. It's very rarely used. And over time, since there's been more you know, generations of uh, analysts and more generations of dynamic therapists, they want to retain the language. And so some of them will use this term, free association, as a bastardized term for listening to a client. They'll say, well, let, let the client free associate. And in my experience, it's pretty rare that a dynamic or uh, that a contemporary dynamic therapist will actually really just let the client free associate in the way that it was used in the classical psychoanalysis. It's hard to explain, but Essentially, what I'm saying is you'll hear some contemporary dynamic therapists use the term free association because they're trying to associate themselves with classical psychoanalysis when, in fact, all they're doing is really just listening to the client. I hope that makes sense. Okay. So the first area of dynamic therapy is, that I'm putting forth in terms of interventions is, is empathy and listening and phenomenology and experience. The second area is exploration and interpretation. This is a, a very important area along with listening and, and empathy. It's what's often associated with psychoanalysis is interpretation. Many of the other therapies, humanistic psychology, cognitive behavioral therapy, uh, collaborative therapies, family therapies, are often not associated with interpretation. This is what, if you're not familiar with our field, this is the sort of classical in the cartoons version of an analyst. You know, the analyst will say, hmm, you had a dream ab about the space needle. This is clearly penis envy. That's an interpretation and ridiculous. Uh, it, the contemporary dynamic therapist, particularly me, <laughs> uh, would never interpret in that way um, for a number of reasons that I'll get into. Get into. So, so the, again, the second area here is what I'm calling exploration and interpretation. So it's not just interpreting as, as a therapist, but it's also just exploring, allowing the client to explore, allowing and encouraging the client to explore, to discover. It's not just listening. It's encouraging discovery and self-awareness. The reason why we want to help our clients to discover and, and to and to uncover things and to become more aware of themselves. It's because awareness is power. This is a phrase that is often used in dynamic, or not often, but sometimes used in dynamic therapy. A lot of the other therapies do not encourage self-awareness, really. They don't really encourage the understanding of, of your own personality. In fact, many of the other therapies emerged in a reaction against this notion. There's many people that will say things like awareness doesn't get you anywhere. And to some extent, I understand the spirit behind that statement, but I actually disagree with it wholeheartedly. I just take myself, for instance, as I've you know, grown up over the years and been to therapy myself, I can tell you that when I have discovered things about my personality, they have been 
extremely useful for me. There have been things that, uh, relationship patterns that have plagued me in my early life that through therapy or through self-discovery I have become aware of and am therefore able to control it and have power over it. For instance, just take, you know, it's a common story. You you have a, a man uh, who, let's see, he tends to be, uh, a, say, he's a gay male and he's, he's attracted to very, uh, let's see, irresponsible uh, partners. He, he is very responsible and he's, he's attracted to very irresponsible people. And at first he loves their, how carefree they are and how they like to have fun. But after six months, 12 months, it starts to drive him crazy. And he does this repeatedly, but he doesn't really know what's happening. Then he goes to therapy and through therapy, they explore his past relationships and he starts to piece things together. And the therapist says like, hmm, it sounds kind of like you might be attracted to irresponsible people, but at first it doesn't, maybe you're just attracted to how carefree they are. But then later it seems like, you know, you've talked about three different relationships in the past where at first you liked that quality and then later you didn't like that quality. And then the client will say, oh my God, let's see, does that fit? Yeah, that does fit. You're right. I I have had that pattern in my relationships. Well, why would that be? Well, maybe it's because of the fact that my mom was irresponsible and my dad was very responsible and they were always fighting and maybe I'm recreating that in my life. Wow, the next person I date, I should really keep an eye on that. I should really, if they're very irresponsible... I should either avoid them because I'll meet the same fate as I always do, or I should learn how to how to appreciate it instead of uh, combat it later on, you know, after six, 12 months. So that's just one tiny little example of how exploration and interpretation can, can give a client power over their relationships and over their life. You know, self-aware, you can't, you can't convince me that self-awareness and awareness and interpretation cannot be helpful because it absolutely can. Now, if you're the sort of therapist that hates interpretation, I dig it. I come from the collaborative world. I've, you know, at least one foot in the collaborative world and, and really understand the benefits of thinking and acting that way. And so I dig it. But for me and mine, I like uh, to use interpretation. Having said that, it should be very collaborative. And this is something that Whenever I hear particularly older dynamic therapists lecture, I, I think that it's the way they talk in a non-collaborative way turns off a lot of people. Uh, what I mean by this is they'll, they'll say things like, well, the client was talking about this, and clearly that meant this, and when I told the client that it meant it, the client disagreed, and that's because the client was being resistant. Let's see if I can come up with an example. Well, I'll just use the same example. So you have this, the gay male, and he says, yeah, I have these, these relationships. And then the therapist says, well, it kind of sounds to me like you're attracted to irresponsibility, and it's, but you, you think of it as being very carefree in the beginning, and then later on, that carefreeness, you actually start to dislike. Well, if the client comes back and says, "Uh, I don't think that really fits because I've had four other relationships and those people were very responsible. So I don't know if this is really a pattern. Well, in in the kind of rigid, non-collaborative dynamic world, they would view this as resistance. They would view this pushback from the client potentially as resistance to the truth and or resistance to the therapy specifically. Whereas uh, a lot of contemporary therapists, and, and me included, are, are very collaborative, and I would say to myself, if, if I said that, uh, I would not be married to my interpretation. In fact, I would, as soon as I heard any doubt in the client's voice, I would immediately discard it and say, well, you know, I'm just throwing it out there. Because the, the truth of the matter is, I know nothing. I can only guide, I can only throw things out there, but in reality, the client is the one that's going to know the truth. They're going to know. They're going to be the ones that are going to know what makes sense. If something resonates for them, then it makes sense, and it, and it is reality. The client is the one that defines whether or not something 
is it, whether or not it fits. Having said that, are there some notions in therapy that come up that uh, the client is not ready to accept? Absolutely, but that doesn't. But I'll never know that. I'll never know that is the thing until the client says, "Huh, you know what? Actually, you said this last month, and now it's making sense for me. I guess I wasn't, you know, ready to accept that." Well, then I know, but I'll never. I'll, just because I think something is true does not, and the client says no. Uh, even if there's a lot of evidence for it, there's no way for me to say, "Oh, well, the client obviously is is just in denial or something like that." I'm 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 a bit of an extremist when it comes to to collaborative the collaborative mindset, in that if I believe something and the client doesn't, then I really force myself to adopt the client's point of view, because it's really quite dangerous as a therapist to start believing you know everything and the client knows nothing. It's really a dangerous position to be in for, for a whole slew of reasons. One is, is that you, how arrogant of you to believe such a thing. But also, when you adopt that stance, it's sort of a combative stance with the client, and you're no longer empathizing, and you're no, and you're no longer really listening, and you're no longer taking a phenomenological, curious stance with the client. The client might pick up on that and might think, oh, my, my therapist thinks he knows everything, and da-da-da. Um, uh, plus, if the client isn't ready to accept it, there's really no use in you shoving it down their throat. And I'm of the the belief, and this is a humanistic kind of thing, in in the belief that clients, that everyone is moving towards growth. And if you throw enough things out there, the things that need to stick will stick and the things that don't won't. And so if something doesn't stick, then it probably isn't meant to be. <laughs> I've never really put it that way, but... So within, so again, we talked about number one, empathy and listening, and number two, we're talking about exploration and interpretation. And we talked about how awareness is power, and we talked about how I like to be collaborative. Well, there are four different areas that I want to identify within exploration and interpretation. So these are like subsets of, of interventions. The first thing, and this is just classic psychoanalysis, classic dynamic therapy, is exploring the past. So this is one area within the second area of exploration interpretation. This is exploring the past and particularly childhood. This is a frequent intervention that dynamic therapists will use. And, it, and again, it really distinguishes dynamic therapists from CBT therapists and humanistic therapists and gestalt. Dynamic therapists are known for asking about the client's childhood and also interpreting primary historical relational events. In other words, exploring your relationship with your parents in particular, or whoever raised you when you were young. The ongoing relationships that you have with your caretakers as a child become internalized, and they become templates for love and for relationships later on in life. So understanding the nuances of your early relationships and the way that your parents related to each other, because that's also internalized. When you understand that, you begin to understand your own relationship idiosyncrasies, shall we say, and your own relationship issues. We begin to understand how one might use projective identification, which we've talked about before. The internalized relationships that you internalize (laughs) when you're young become externalized often through projective identification. For instance, again, going to our gay male client, as I said, he has, this is a fictional person, by the way, he has a mother who was irresponsible and a father who was overly responsible, and they would fight a lot. And the, as a boy, he internalized this relationship. He saw them fighting, and he internalized it. And, be, and it becomes, in a crude sense of, of explaining it, it becomes a template for romantic uh, love. It becomes a, a template for what a partnership, a romantic partnership, looks like, in which one person is irresponsible and the other person is responsible. And this is a an internalization of a relationship. And as it uh, becomes a part of the personality, it doesn't sit quite right in the psyche, and it becomes uh, conflictual. It's an inner conflict is what we call it. And inside of him as he's growing up, 
he he has a, one side of him that is very irresponsible, and he has another side of him that is overly responsible. And these two sides don't do well together in his psyche. And sometimes he has self-talk of like, oh, you're irresponsible, or oh, you're, you're, you're too responsible. And so he'll have this inner dialogue, and it becomes t- uh, tense inside of his psyche. And unconsciously, he wants to soothe this tension. And one way that humans will soothe this inner conflict tension is through the defense mechanism called projective identification. And the way to do that, the easiest way, is to find a romantic partner in which you're very involved with all the time. And you take one side of that internal representation and you project it onto the other person while identifying with the other side. So according to this fictional history that we have of this client, he is attracted to irresponsible people because it allows him the ability to project his internalized mother on to these partners while he identifies with his internalized father. In reality, he has this inner conflict that is raging, but there's a fantasy through the defense mechanism that you can relieve that tension that's going on inside the person by finding another person to fight with in this way, making the internal conflict external. I really hope this is making sense to you because it's quite complicated. But anyway, so when we explore someone's past and when we interpret someone's past, we begin to understand these issues. So this is an important area of exploration and interpretation, exploring someone's past. Another area is to interpret relationship themes. This is related to what I was talking about. So we've got past, and we also have relationship themes. So dynamic therapists are very interested in the client's relationships and the themes of those relationships, and in terms of modifying their current relationships to make them more healthy. Also, attachment styles might come into play here. The third area of exploration and interpretation is interpreting and exploring inner conflicts and defense mechanisms. Again, this is sort of overlapping with my discussion of the past. You try to understand what inner conflicts you might have, what triggers you might have that will involve your inner conflicts. Your wounds, your issues involve inner conflicts. You're also trying to figure out defense mechanisms that you employ. You're trying to become aware of that so that you can have power over it. If you tend to use projective identification frequently when you are threatened in your attachments, then by becoming aware of it, you can, you can learn how to stop doing that. So, for instance, with this fictional client, he is looking at his relationships through exploration, and he's thinking, holy crap, I'm recreating my parental marriage that they had, and, and I've been doing this a long time, and I have this inner conflict between responsibility and irresponsibility. And when someone threatens me attachment-wise, when I feel like I can't trust someone or when someone hurts my feelings, I tend to uh, blast them by calling them irresponsible. And then later that night, I tend to act irresponsible by drinking. And so I'm just embodying this whole weird, irresponsible, responsible, overly responsible dynamic. And the def- and I become aware of you know, the defense mechanisms that kick in through, you know, whether it be productive identification or denial or justification or displacement. I, I'm, I'm learning that about myself through therapy, and uh, the therapist is helping me understand that, and, and I'm gaining power over that. And instead of employing defense mechanisms like productive identification, I'm learning how to actually have a, an adult conversation with that person who hurt, who hurt my feelings and try to deepen that relationship in a very direct way rather than turning to a defense mechanism to alleviate the pain that I'm feeling. So uh, through interpretation and awareness of defense mechanisms, you, you don't try to get rid of your defense mechanisms. You try to modify them to be more healthy. There's nothing wrong with defenses. They're actually good for the ego to employ, but there are more destructive, what we call primitive defenses, that tend to be much more destructive to your life and other people, and you're trying to move it to to more functional, more mature defenses. And the last area of exploration and interpretation are dreams. Everyone knows about the interpretation of dreams, and this is very much associated with psychoanalysis. But I have to say, it's rarely used. I don't think a lot of clients really want to have their dreams analyzed, and it's sort of a dying art to some extent. I use it sometimes, 
and I've I've explained how to do it in the past. They use a very collaborative approach in which I just throw things out there. I never tell someone what their dream meant the way that classical psychoanalysis used to do. You know, they would say, Oh, Wolfman, you dreamt about a wolf with a big bushy tail. Well obviously that's a penis symbol. It's a phallic symbol and you're having your Oedipus complex with your dad and da 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 you want to kill your dad and have sex with your mom. That's what Freud would do <laughs> and that's what a lot of people did after him and frankly that's what a lot of people still do. But I don't do that. When I am, quote-unquote, analyzing someone's dream, it's basically I'm walking them through a bunch of questions, and, and, I'm just at, and, I'm, and usually what happens, if there is a, a discovery to be made, the client will come to it themselves, and they'll say, you know, I just ask a bunch of questions like, well, you know, okay, you had a dream about water. Does, what does water mean to you? Or what emotion were you feeling in that moment? Or who else was there? How were you feeling? And then I might ask a question like, you know, well, what do you think this dream has to do about? And they'll say, actually, it has to do with my work, you know, yesterday. I, I felt hurt by my boss, and this probably has to do with that. And I'd say, oh, okay, that makes sense to me. And then, so I'm not interpreting. I'm just providing the landscape, and the client figures it out for themselves. Because, again, what do I know? How, how would I possibly know the associations that a client had? How, how would I possibly know what a dream meant to them? They're the only ones that are going to know that. And so I'm not going to interpret for them. I'm just going to provide, again, the space to explore and so that they can interpret and discover for themselves. Okay. So again, we have the three main intervention areas in dynamic therapy that I employ. We have empathy and listening. We have exploration and interpretation. And number three, we have corrective experiences. This is a a very, very important area of dynamic therapy, in my opinion. And one that I, I think it's sort of a dying area or something. I'll hear people talking about it. I think people avoid it for a number of reasons that maybe I'll get into. But anyway, I think that this is really perhaps the most important area because to me it is the most overtly therapeutic. You know, listening and empathy are great, and they're obviously extremely important. The relationship is extremely important. And interpretation and exploration are also great. But the one thing that truly good dynamic therapists can provide, because, let me back up. So a lot of people can listen. A lot of people can provide empathy. A lot of people can interpret. But it, it takes a, um, what label should I put it takes a, a truly therapeutic therapist to be corrective, is what the language is used in dynamic therapy. And let me explain. So in my language, in my sort of bastardized object relations, psychoanalytic language, what through corrective, sometimes they're called corrective emotional experiences, but I just say corrective experiences. By employing a corrective experience, what you're trying to do as the, you're, you're using the relationship between the client and therapist, whether it's one client or a couple or a family, through your relationship as a therapist with the client, you're attempting to have the client internalize something helpful. So it's sort of complicated, and I'm going to attempt to explain it, but everyone emerges from childhood with a number of different internalizations. Remember that I said that when you're a child, you internalize the relationships that you're in. Well, every child emerges from, from every, every adult who emerges from childhood had experiences that were loving. You know, every kid, no matter how poorly they were treated, had at least some experience with being loving. And most people have a good amount of experiences being loved as a, as a young child. And so there's a representation in their psyche, in their personality, that represents the relationship of someone loving someone and someone, and someone else receiving love. So there's that internalization that they've internalized. And I should note here that I'm using my own language, and if you use this language with other dynamic people, they might look at you a little funny. So just know that. Um, so, so you have that internalization. Every adult has also been punished and disappointed. Every parent has had to discipline their child. And in those moments, particularly when children are very young, children don't take it well all the time. They, they're disappointed. They're very angry. They're hurt. 
by, and they're very frustrated with their parents. So every, every adult had a childhood experience of being frustrated with their caregivers and have internalized this relationship. And so they have an internalization of being frustrated in addition to being loved. And there's all, and I could go down the list of all the other primary experiences that we have of being rejected and criticized and praised and held and all the different and fed and satiated and all these different things we've internalized. Well, each one of us have internalized it in a different way. I use the term color. Each, each one of us has a different shade or color of the love internalization. And through therapy, what we're trying to do is we're trying to use the relationship, use the therapeutic relationship to bolster particular internalizations and to diminish others. So take, for instance, there's, a, again, just this client who has these issues of irresponsibility and responsibility. Well, over time, as the relationship becomes more intense between client and therapist, the client will begin to what they call transfer onto the therapist. And as the client transfers, this is a displacement of, of childhood experiences. So the, the client, this, this gay male client, had experienced this conflictual parents who were, one, responsible and two, irresponsible. And over time, what he might do is he might start, he might start trying to, he might start transferring, say, his dad onto me. He might see me as being overly responsible. That would be an easy thing to do, right? Therapists seem like overly responsible, even though they rarely are uh, in real life. But but he, he might look at me, and, and, and so he might transfer his father onto me, and he might start reacting to me with similar feelings that he had towards his father. And at the same time, he'd be identifying with that irresponsible. So he might feel like, oh, you're always on my case about, about this or that. And through projective identification, he might be trying to socialize me to agree, agree with it. Well, if I was to not be a therapist and not to be aware of my counter-transference and not to be aware of projective identification, then I might act according to my urges, which might be to become overly responsible with the client. And therapists will always have this pull to do this if this is what the client is projecting onto them. And so I, as a therapist, might have all these urges to say things like, well, it sounds to me like you're not being very responsible. It sounds like you're really setting yourself up for failure here. And I might be thinking consciously that I'm acting therapeutically, but unconsciously what's happening is I'm giving into the countertransference and I'm actually providing a I'm actually not providing a corrective experience for the client. What a corrective experience is, is in that moment, as I am being socialized to, through transference, through displacement of his relationship with his father, as I'm being socialized to react in a particularly overly responsible way, if I'm aware of it and I'm getting consultation and I'm, and I'm differentiated, I realize this is an opportunity for a corrective experience. Instead of reacting in an overly responsible way to him, I'm going to intuit through wisdom and through my own experience as a human being, I am going to react to him in a corrective way. I'm going to provide him with a corrective experience. If I give into my counter-transferential urge to be overly responsible and to criticize him, that would just be playing into the typical relationship that this guy creates in all of his relationships. But if I'm going to be corrective, I'm going to fight against it, and I'm going to have empathy, and I'm going to, I'm going to become centered, and I'm going to listen to my wisdom, and I'm going to try to really connect with him, and I'm going to avoid criticizing him. Uh, it, it's, it, you know, I can't tell you the exact thing to do to provide a corrective experience, but what the key is is to avoid the countertransferential urge, to be very aware of it. And part of that is knowing the typical projective identifications that a client will have, and so you can see it when they're coming. And instead of doing that, you do something else that is corrective. So let's just try to come up with an example. So say this, this client he says to me, uh, he comes, he sits down and he says, oh yeah, I was out partying all night last night. And I don't know, I kind of felt like I deserved it because uh, work has been hard. 
And, you know, uh, but, you know, I, uh, yeah, sure, I went gambling and I lost $500, but, you know, it's no big deal. I mean, geez, you know, it, it, anyone listening to that will, 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 well, most people will tend to have an urge of just like, what are you doing? You're like partying all the time and you're spending all your money and that's not responsible. You're going to hurt yourself. And so, so I might start noticing that. It's like, oh, I'm starting to feel that, that feeling. He's, he's trying to get me to buy into a, a projective identification here. So instead of criticizing him and giving him the message that I think he is not doing a good thing, I will do something corrective by saying something like, well, that's great that you're doing something for yourself. That's really wonderful that you're spending the time taking care of yourself. Your work has been hard, and good for you for uh, you know, thinking of your self-care, because I know that that's important for all of us, and you deserve, you deserve that. So in that moment, the client is expecting me to criticize and might even... And, and is actually subconsciously wanting me to criticize him. But there's another part of him that wants me to love him, that wants me to provide a corrective experience. And so what I'm doing, if I do this over, it's not just once. You have to do it over and over again. It's a, an emotional experience, and it's difficult to know what to do in the moment as a therapist because you, you have to fight against unconscious urges. But if I do this enough times, what happens is the client internalizes a new relationship and they are not internalizing an expected relationship. So he's not internalizing a overly responsible, irresponsible dyad. And so that internalization in a psyche is actually diminishing over time because it's, it's, it's not being uh, reinforced and so it's diminishing and becoming less powerful in his, in his personality. Meanwhile, the experience of being cared about and listened to and valued and not criticized is actually being bolstered because in his childhood, he likely had those experiences as well. And so that internalization is being bolstered. This is a corrective experience. And it's something that if you provide enough times in therapy, and sometimes it could just be once, depending on the dysfunction, but, but oftentimes it has to be repeated over time. If you do this, you're bolstering helpful internalizations in the client, and you're diminishing unhelpful internalizations. I hope, I hope that makes sense. Let me know if this makes any sense to you, patrons, because I feel like I'm going down a particularly complicated area, and I really hope this, this makes sense. It should be pointed out, since I'm a couple and family therapist, I'm a marriage and family therapist, that with about half of my clients are couples and families, and it's such a wonderful opportunity for corrective experiences because you don't necessarily have to create a relationship between the client and the therapist. You have relationships that are occurring right in, right in the room. And so with your guidance as a therapist, a dynamic a family therapist, you can actually help create corrective experiences for family members in the room and outside of the office too. And it can be much more impactful to people. For instance, say this gay male therapist comes to me and I says, I, I say to him, actually, let's bring your parents in. Let's bring them in. And then as the parents and him start to interact and, I, and the irresponsible mother starts to enact her irresponsibility and the father starts to criticize and the son seems to be upset and there's anxiety going around in this triangle. Well, if I engineer the father and I say, so it sounds like you're being critical. And the father says, well, I mean, wouldn't you be? I mean, look at my wife. She's irresponsible. And I would say, well, when she acts that way, when, when she does those things, how does it make you feel? Well, I don't know. It just makes me upset. Well, what's underneath that upset? Well, I don't know. I guess I'm afraid that she, you know, she's going to hurt herself and I'm really worried about her. Oh, okay. So you're worried. You love your wife. And when she acts in those ways, you, it scares you and you, you feel a lot of empathy for your wife and you worry about her. So just that little bit right there, the son is watching this. And by seeing the behind-the-scenes emotions, he is, he is no longer internalizing a critical dad and an irresponsible mom. He's internalizing a caring father and a scared father and a father that loves everyone, a father, a father that loves his, his wife and is struggling. 
And so this is a different kind of internalization than the critical versus irresponsible part. And so, uh, and the relationship that he has with his parents is already intense. In order for an internalization to stick, the relationship has to be intense. And obviously, between parents and children, the relationship is going to be intense. But in order for you as a therapist to provide corrective experiences, you have to make the relationship intense. You can't, you have, you can't stay surface as a therapist. And so there's a number of different ways to deepen the relationship between client and therapist. I won't go into all the ways, but some of the ways are simply just to talk about the relationship, to say something like, so what do you think about me? You know, if I'm the therapist, I would say, so, you know, what do you think about who I am? What, or what do you think about what's going on in my mind? Or if the client says something like, yeah, I just hate all people. Everyone bugs me. Uh, the thera- the a dynamic therapist would say, do you hate me too? Because if you hate me, that's okay. Let's talk about that. So instead of talking about the client's relationships with other people outside of the, outside of the office, which is useful, the dynamic therapist will also direct conversations about the relationship between the client and the therapist. This provides a real-life example to work with. If the client says, I hate all people, and the therapist says, does that mean you hate me? And the client says, well, actually, yeah, sometimes I do hate you. Okay, well, let's talk about that. You know, what, what triggers that hate? Why, why do you hate me? How do you think I feel about that? And just, just intensifying and focusing on the relationship that's happening right there. Because when you do that, it, it usually deepens the relationship, makes it more intense, and provides a more firm foundation for corrective experiences to occur. It's sort of like if a random person on the street came up to you and said that they liked your shirt. That well, That's not a good example. If, if a random person on the street came up to you and said that they thought you had a wonderful personality, you'd say like, well, you don't know me. <laughs> You're just trying to get money out of me or something. But if if your father or your best friend or your cousin or your daughter said to you in a very sincere way that they loved your personality, you would take that more to heart. And so along those lines, if your therapeutic relationship is very shallow, it's not going to provide uh, the ability to have corrective experiences. It's not going to provide the ability to bolster useful internalizations. The result of providing these corrective experiences are things like having less suffering in life, less emotional suffering in my experience. If you provide this sort of therapy, this sort of dynamic therapy, people suffer less. They have less negative self-talk because those internal conflicts are diminished. And so therefore uh, the negative self-talk that emerges from that, from that internal uh, internalization uh, becomes diminished along with the internalization itself. People have less reactivity as they are provided corrective experiences. They're, they're more differentiated. They have more healthy relationships with other people. They might trust other people more. They might have better decision-making because they're less clouded by defenses and other kinds of things. They might be less hostile. They might have more empathy for other people. When you have corrective experiences, it often involves you receiving a lot of caring, attention, love, and empathy from other people. And if you are given enough empathy and attention, you tend to have more of it to give to other people. It might lead to better parenting. This is also an important thing. It it often leads to better relationships like marriages and partnerships, this sort of thing. Okay, so those are the three main umbrellas in dynamic therapy that I want to point out. One, empathy and listening. Number two, exploration and interpretation. Number three, corrective experiences. Very important. All of these things, all three of these areas, are done while keeping the following things in mind. You need to keep culture and power and feminism in mind. Dynamic therapy doesn't explicitly discuss feminism. So you have to, if you're a dynamic therapist, although there's tons of writing going way back uh, to the early early 20th century about feminism, proto-feminism. Um, 
although there's writing, it's not explicit in the therapy. And so therefore you have to make sure that you keep an eye on culture and power and feminism and multiculturalism. Another thing you need to keep an eye on is biology. Uh, traditional classical psychoanalysis didn't really emphasize biology and it's important to, to have some understanding of biology, you know, sleep, medications, other kinds of things. You should, you should keep an eye on that because dynamic therapy doesn't necessarily involve that. Another thing you should know about and keep an eye on is research regarding trauma. Dynamic therapy, if you don't understand how trauma works and how PTSD works, as a dynamic therapist, you might delve into something in someone's past without being aware that it could actually really harm them. And once you get at some of those traumatic experiences in the client, you might not know how to help them recover from the trauma because you don't understand how the brain works, you don't understand how trauma works, you don't understand how PTSD works. And so you always need to keep an eye on that. I, I keep hammering that idea whenever I get a chance, and I'll hammer it here now. The other thing you need to always keep in mind and is, regardless of what therapy you provide, in my opinion, is your own issues and countertransference. You have to always keep an eye on that. Psychodynamic therapists are famous for providing us with a template and an understanding of countertransference and our own feelings. The, the word countertransference comes out of psychoanalysis. All right. So lastly, I just want to provide some of the things in psychoanalysis that I don't use that are often involved in dynamic therapy. The, the most famous thing that I don't use are psychosexual phases, the Oedipus complex, the anal phase. All these things are ridiculous in my, in my book. Not only are they not supported by the evidence, but they're actually not very useful in therapy, in my opinion. I could see how they would be useful for some people, but they're, they're very not useful for me. Also, I tend not to think about drives, and I tend not to think so much about the pleasure principle and the id and all that stuff. I will sometimes use the superego id metaphor, because I think it is helpful sometimes. But I don't emphasize it the way that classical psychoanalysis did. Also, uh, along these lines, I don't emphasize that everything is related to sex. A lot of times, psychoanalysis and dynamic therapy is associated with all of the talk about sex and how everything comes back to sex. Well, a lot of things do come back to sex, but not everything. There are plenty of things that have, in fact, I would say everything comes back to attachment and sex is a part of that. Let's just put it that way. Also, another thing I, that is sometimes associated with dynamic therapy is the belief that everything that I feel as a therapist is related to the client's issues. I've talked about this in other episodes, but uh, for some, they believe that whatever sort of emotional reaction we have as a therapist and whatever dream we have about a client, it is absolutely related to the client's issues. But I actually don't adhere to that, and many also don't adhere to that idea in that some of my feelings might purely just have to do with me that might not have anything to do with the client. It might be completely based on my issues and my personality and have nothing to do with them. The other thing that's often associated with psychoanalysis is, you know, the couch. Uh, people don't lay down on my couch, although they probably could. There are very, very few true psychoanalysts around anymore who actually utilize the couch. There are some for sure, but they're very, very rare. I'm just going to take a guess and say in Seattle, out of the thousands of therapists, there's probably, I don't know, 10 to 30, 50 psychoanalysts in, in town. And even them, because I know some of them, don't do the couch thing with every client. They will invite clients to use the couch, and some of them will use it, meaning they lay, lie down on the couch and free associate. Um, but, but many contemporary psychoanalysts will look very similar to other therapists in that they sit across, you know, they sit in a chairs and they talk and they, they don't lay down on any couches. The other thing that I don't adhere to, and again, most people don't, is the three or four times a week. Class, classical psychoanalysis that is still practiced today tends to involve several sessions per week, which can be 
quite uh, of a you know a lot of time in terms of committing to psychoanalysis and it can be quite expensive because insurance will not likely pay for three or four sessions a week and so it seems uh, a bit much for me i i can get by meeting with clients once a week or once every other week sometimes once every three weeks i can get a lot done a lot of therapists don't believe that they think you have to meet with them every week at the same time i, I don't i don't find that to be true i can meet with my clients uh, less often. Certainly, if we meet every week, it provides certain benefits, but there's disbenefits. There's there's disadvantages to meeting every week too. Um, sometimes not a not enough life occurs between the session to talk about anything, and so sometimes it, you really don't want to meet every week. All right. Well, I hope that uh, that isn't too confusing. Let me know if that's confusing, and let me know if these are the sorts of episodes you want to hear. Certainly, patron Danielle wanted to hear about this. I hope, patron Danielle, I hope you're satisfied with this episode. Let me know. All right. Well, that does it for another episode of Psychology in Seattle. Happy New Year and happy holidays, by the way. It's a wonderful thing for all of you patrons to become patrons. It makes me feel quite loved and quite appreciated. Uh, I can tell you that quite honestly. I frequently check to see if there are new patrons. I get an email notification whenever there's a new patron, and then as soon as I can, I will email you the instructions for the premium feed. That's not a robot. That's actually me emailing you. Because I hope it's clear that I want to create a community uh, of patrons. I want to create a a community of people that want to be a part of our community. <laughs> and I love hearing from you guys, and I love communicating and and potentially even meeting you guys. Uh, I want to actually have a, a patron party maybe in March, at the end of March. And so, you know, keep an eye out for that. I, I'm open to suggestions. I have no idea how to do that. But um, the the one requirement is that when we meet, you can't kill me. That's that's my one requirement, that uh, you can't be a crazy person and kill me. <laughs> uh, all right. Well, that does it for another episode of Psychology in Seattle. Thanks for joining me. Please take care of yourself because you deserve it. You, you really, really do. <laughs>